Hey everyone, it's Erica. I've prepared something special for you. I wanna invite you to my one-of-a-kind five-day challenge where I'll be sharing how you, along with thousands of others, can start investing with confidence. You're probably thinking, Erica, I've never invested into the stock market, or I don't have a ton of money lying around. But that's exactly why I created this challenge for you. It doesn't matter if you have lots of money to start with or next to nothing. You'll discover easy and fun ways to start generating passive income, multiply your money, and create a future of financial independence without the guesswork, complexity, or risk when it comes to investing. The challenge is right around the corner, so secure your spot by clicking the link in the show notes. And by the way, this challenge is totally free. So click the link in the show notes or go to erica.com slash invest. That's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash invest. Again, that's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash invest to secure your spot. Now back to the episode. Health is far more than the aesthetics or the athletic performance. It is avoidance of disease and optimizing ourselves to be able to perform at our peak. You have control over your aging. Chris Miraboli of Novos Labs, the CEO of Novos, human longevity company. He's a longevity expert and researcher who is a serial entrepreneur, a brain tumor survivor. You start seeing people getting chronic diseases of aging in their late 20s, as early as when you're in your mid to late 20s, you should start paying attention to I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. Even though I have these world-class health experts come on the Erica Taught Me podcast and tell me that I need to exercise, recently I've been finding it quite difficult to stay motivated when it comes to exercise. And if I'm being honest, by recently, I mean it's been years since I've had a consistent workout routine. January 1st of every year, I'll get motivated and say, this is the year I'm going to get fit but then I slip back into my old habits. But this time, things are going to be different, actually. I want to prioritize my health. I want to feel strong. I want to feel like I'm taking care of my body. To achieve this, I've discovered Copilot, and I'm just a few weeks in, but let me tell you, it's been a game changer. With Copilot, you download the app and you get assigned an expert coach. Mine is amazing. We got on a kickoff call where we talked about everything from my goals, what I want to achieve. I told her that I have a bad lower back, so I want to make sure that the exercises don't hurt it. Then she assigned me my workouts. The workouts are customized for you, and you can work out at any time at the gym or home, wherever you are. Your expert coach is there for you. I was sick recently, and you can kind of hear I'm still getting over it. So I messaged her in the app, and she gave me an easy 10-minute stretch to do instead of the normal workout. I'm so excited to be kicking off my health journey with Copilot. And if you've been wanting to kickstart your health, then go to erica.com slash copilot, Erica, always with a K, to get a 14-day free trial with your own personal trainer. Again, that's erica.com slash copilot. So when we talk about aging, most people, myself included, I'd never realized that you could actually reverse or slow down the aging process. How did you discover that this was even possible? Yeah, so when I was younger, uh, I was really interested in health, in particular because when I was in high school, I was suddenly diagnosed with a brain tumor, uh, not far from where we're sitting right now, and I was rushed to the hospital, and fortunately, my, my life was spared. 
But then that made me interested in disease and trying to avoid disease and the aging process specifically because most people don't realize is the number one risk factor for most chronic illnesses, everything from cancer to heart disease, diabetes, dementia, Alzheimer's, glaucoma, you name it. The number one risk factor is aging. Lung cancer is not caused primarily by smoking, it's actually by aging. And so if that's the case, I wanted to learn more about aging. And so I started to research it and I didn't realize it at the time, but there was a lot of scientific literature on the causes of aging. And by understanding the causes of aging, scientists were then able to try to manipulate those causes and were able to show in experiments that you can slow down the pace at which we age and you can accelerate it. And by extension, you can help animals and humans live longer lives or shorter lives. And so now we've replicated this in the form of real world tests, real world implementations of diet and activity and so on that can go in either direction of slowing down or accelerating aging. What are the three main causes of aging? Well, that's a controversial topic in terms of, at least on the microscopic biological level, on the more macro lifestyle level, I would say that one common cause of aging or accelerated aging, at least, is too much stress on the body in the form of, say, toxin exposure or, or stressors on the body that can range from cigarette smoke, for example, to excessive ultraviolet exposure, right? Because UV rays from the sun, they cause DNA mutations. And the body's able to repair those DNA mutations as long as it's within reason. But as soon as you're going too far with it, then it accelerates and the body can't cope with it and then disease can form. So one way I like to think about this is there are all of these different stressors in our lives, everything from maybe pollution, maybe you don't smoke, maybe it's secondhand smoke, or maybe it's just city streets. Then you also have the sun exposure. Then you have the foods you, you eat and maybe the alcohol you drink. And all of these things are adding up to additional stressors on the body. And the body can only handle so much. So you need to be mindful of that. And it doesn't mean you have to avoid all stressors. In fact, if you'd like, we can talk about helpful stressors, this concept known as hormesis, where you get stronger from stressors. But if you go too far with it, then that's going to accelerate the process. So what would you say if there's one thing people could implement that you feel like doesn't really impact their quality of life too? What could that one thing be? Yeah. So I think that first of all, it, it really comes down to creating a habit, right? So the first few weeks are difficult to do, but once you get past, I would say the three week mark, it becomes significantly easier. Part of the reason for that is that our hormonal cycles are adjusting and our microbiome is adjusting as well. And it takes some time for these biological processes to adapt. But once they do, it becomes significantly easier to achieve. So I would say first and foremost, try to achieve this, be disciplined for 21 days. And however you need to do that, whether it be like a reminder on your, your, your smartphone, that like each day it reminds you each morning, don't eat until 12 p.m. or something. Or, or whatever you need to, to um, stay disciplined for that time frame, And then you can also insert other things that can stave off the hunger for a little bit longer. I find that when I have coffee, even if it's decaf, right? So you don't want to have too much caffeine, right? If you need to drink the coffee to hold things off and you end up having six cups of coffee, then that's a problem. But if it's two cups of, of caffeine and four cups of decaf, then you're fine, right? And I find that having that coffee 
makes it much, much easier for me to go a longer period of time without having having that food. So how long have you been doing the time-restricted eating? It's been years now, maybe probably eight, nine years now. Do these things become less effective the longer you do it? Because I can imagine maybe the first three months you see a big impact, but now that is it is kind of routine in your life, is it just... No, it, it doesn't become less effective. If anything, you can think of it as this is the ideal healthy way that our human biology prefers things to be. And so when you're not behaving this way, you're actually making yourself less healthy. And so if you're living the normal way, so to speak, that's actually just accruing damage over time. Whereas if you're doing it this way, then you're actually in the neutral place and you feel you feel good the whole time. What about these good stressors that you were mentioning earlier? What should we know about those? Sure. So, so the concept is known as hormesis. And it basically is, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, right? Which we know is, is not literally true, but there is some truth to that statement. A great example of it is exercise. So when you're exercising, let's just say you're weightlifting, you're actually causing damage, micro damage to your muscle fibers. And the body comes back and says, well, if there's damage here, I want to prevent this next time. So I'm going to come back and repair the damage and I'm going to make the muscles a little bit stronger. And so that's how muscle is is built. That's how strength is built. Now, take an extreme example. If you try to lift a weight that's way too heavy for you, you'll tear a muscle. And that's not hormesis anymore. That's damage. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's a negative outcome, right? So the dose makes the poison, as they say. And that applies to practically everything from exercise to different foods, to supplements and so on. It also applies to different ingredients found in certain types of foods. For example, there are these phytonutrients within vegetables and fruits that are called antioxidants, but they're not technically antioxidants by the traditional definition in the sense that what is what is a, a traditional antioxidant? The way it works is that there are free radicals in our bodies, right? This is like damaging molecules in our bodies. And an antioxidant intercepts it and prevents that damaging molecule from causing damage. So vitamin C, for example, or vitamin E is an antioxidant in the traditional sense. But then you have these molecules that are called antioxidants, but actually technically aren't. They're actually poisons within the food, within the vegetable, within the kale, within the spinach, within the strawberry. But what ends up happening is the body sees these poisons and it's such a small dose that the body can easily cope with it. And as a, the way it copes with it is it upregulates or increases the amount of antioxidants that the body produces because our body can create antioxidants too. Something like glutathione, for example, or superoxide dismutase, right? These big words okay. for these antioxidants that our bodies produce. And so that's an example of hormesis again, where you're getting a little bit of a poison from these fruits and vegetables, but it's a tolerable dose where the body actually comes back stronger. And by producing more of these antioxidants, it's that much more capable of protecting itself from other toxic insults, like maybe alcohol or pollution and so on. That's I've never heard of that. So for these foods, can you have too much where it impacts you in a negative way? No. So the amount of these phytonutrients that are considered as antioxidants are so low within the foods 
that it is extremely difficult for you, I would say practically impossible for you to overdose on any of these. Take, for example, resveratrol. Resveratrol was made popular because it's a molecule that can have antioxidant effects in red wine. Okay. And in order for you to get enough of a dosage of the resveratrol for it to even be significantly beneficial for you, you would actually have to have like barrels of wine every day. So the dosage is extremely small. Now, in other cases, the dosage is high enough within the fruits and vegetables in a balanced diet where you don't need to have tons and tons of it. So the answer is that it, it, it's either too little or it's the right amount, but you're not going to overdose on these. So when people say, oh, having a glass of red wine a night is good for you, is that not true? It's not true, unfortunately. <laughs> no, there, there was some research that found that it could potentially, alcohol in general and maybe red wine could reduce uh, the risk of heart attack, for example. Unfortunately, a pin was put in that balloon where scientists analyzed those scientific papers and ran new analysis on it with better math, essentially. And they found that for every drink, uh, you have the the more damage it, it's causing to to your health. So oh, no. even even small doses, um, alcohol would not be considered a hormetic stressor. It would be considered still a toxin at low doses. How do you find as you're going through all of this research what to trust and what not to trust? Because if so many of these like age old things that we've been told are getting disproved, how do we know if what's out there right now that we're relying on is actually true? It's a really good question. So. I'm very fortunate with my company to have access to some of the world's best scientists. And within the scientific community, whenever a scientific paper is published in mainstream media, the scientists like, you know, facepalm, right? They're like, oh, here we go again with mainstream media making something big out of this. Typically, what you're seeing in the mainstream is just trying to get the headlines and the clicks and the views. And it's not, not actually true. What the scientists do is they look at the body of research and they look at the strengths and the flaws within each of the studies. And then they have a balanced perspective to say, well, we don't know anything with absolute certainty, despite what the news might make it seem like science does, right? Not anything with absolute certainty, but what science does is they, they work on the odds, right? Mm -hmm. Like what are the odds that this is correct versus incorrect? And the more research, the more confident or less confident they can become about something. So when it comes to a topic like alcohol, there are plenty of researchers who have said for a long time, we don't believe that alcohol has any positive effects. And if it does, it might just be in the sense of reducing anxiety. So someone who had like high blood pressure and was high risk of a heart attack, maybe it calmed them enough so that they didn't have that high blood pressure. But overall, ethanol, which is the chemical of alcohol, it's destructive, right? You put it on a virus and it kills the virus. You put it on a cell and it destroys the cell. So scientists pretty much knew that it was, it was corrosive and destructive. Mm. But then you have you know, the press, you also have lobbyists, like alcohol is a big industry. They want people to believe it's good for you. And so to your question, I would say you need to find some trusted sources. We hope as a company that our blog uh, at novoslabs.com, mm -hmm. that we, we have articles written by PhDs and MDs that are trying to dispel the myths and base it all on research. We cite everything that we put on the website for that reason. We want people to be educated and informed and to know where we're coming with, from with this information and then ultimately decide for yourself. But it's not about the headlines. It's about educating people.
I had an epiphany recently. My husband got a whoop watch and it shows him the quality of his sleep. And on nights when he has a glass or two of wine, the quality of his sleep is never as good as when he doesn't. And I don't think I ever quite realized how directly correlated those are. Oh, yeah. Right? So Yes, definitely. So I, I have an aura ring, which is similar to a whoop. And it, it, it shows the same thing for me. And I have to, if I'm honest with myself, I've reduced my alcohol intake as a direct result of having this and seeing what it does to my sleep. So if anyone is actually caring to reduce their alcohol intake, this is actually good to your earlier question of how do you enforce habits? This is a good way to reinforce the habit is to actually see with objective data, looking at your sleep quality, is it good or bad? But there's a difference between, you know, being consciously awake and you can actually be like, for example, in a very light sleep, not a deep restorative sleep. So you're not conscious, you're not awake and you mistakenly believe that's a good quality night, but it actually isn't. You're not repairing your body in those instances. And that's part of the reason, not the only reason, but part of the reason people feel hung over the next day. Another reason is dehydration or lack of vitamins and minerals, but poor sleep. Uh, as a result of the alcohol is part of the reason you have a hangover. I did something I shouldn't have. I Googled my name. And you know how it starts to auto-populate? Well, the top three suggested searches were Erica Kohlberg husband, Erica Kohlberg net worth, and Erica Kohlberg location. The first two, I understand, but the location got me a little freaked out. I feel like people, myself included, maybe don't even realize how much data of yours others have access to. Have you heard of data brokers? These are corporations that collect huge amounts of personally identifiable information, like your name and even your address, from many sources like government public records and social media. These companies are problematic because they can lead to issues like identity theft. My sister had her identity stolen and it was a huge nightmare. So between that and discovering people are Googling Erica Kohlberg location, that was the wake-up call I needed. I've started taking steps to be much safer online. That's why I'm very excited to tell you about our sponsor today, Delete Me. Delete Me helps you to remove your personal information from people search websites so that you are protected online. All you have to do is submit your information and let their experts find and remove your personal information. I just got my first report from them and I'm shocked. They found 36 places where my name, age, address, and other really sensitive information had been leaked. So now they're handling removal for me so that my personal information gets removed from those sites. If you're ready to get your first report and protect yourself online, just go to joindeleteme.com slash Erica and use code Erica. That's Erica with a K to get 20% off. Again, that's joindeleteme.com slash Erica and use code Erica. If I'm understanding this correctly, it's not that the number of hours you sleep was necessarily impacted. It's that quality during the sleep time. Yeah, so, so some people... What oftentimes happens when, when someone goes to sleep intoxicated, uh, not always, but oftentimes, is they'll, they'll fall asleep very quickly and then they might wake up in the middle of the night and they might have trouble falling back asleep or maybe they fall back asleep. But what's happening is at that point, your body has finished processing the alcohol and your liver, your body preferentially processes the alcohol before anything else. So if you eat food and you drink alcohol, the body is processing the alcohol first because it's a toxin mm. and it knows it's a toxin. So you go to sleep 
the body is processing that alcohol and alcohol has, has calories. So it can actually also be used for energy. Don't take that in the wrong way. You shouldn't use it like, you know, before going <laughs> for a workout or something, but it does have energy. And so the, your metabolism processes that. And then suddenly your blood glucose can, can take a nosedive and you become somewhat hypoglycemic. And so that then leads you to wake up and you might, you have stress hormones like cortisol or that's trying to raise your blood glucose back to a normal level. And that's why you wake up in the middle of the night and then the body might then start processing. Maybe you had food in your stomach and it starts to process those foods and then you fall back asleep. So if you have no food in your stomach and you have that alcohol, probably going to wake up and have trouble falling back asleep. If you have food in your stomach after that alcohol is processed, then uh, your body has something to sustain your glucose levels and you'll probably fall back asleep. But nonetheless, that whole time, the quality of your sleep was not as good. It was not ideal. Why is it then when we're getting, as we're getting older, that alcohol affects us more the next day? Because I remember when I was 20 years old, I could go out and have a big night. And then the next morning I would wake up and go to the gym. Now in my 30s, it's harder. I'll go out, have a big night, and then I'm kind of dead the whole next day too. Why is it that aging is tied to how we get impacted the next day. Yeah, because as part of the aging process, there are these biological causes, right? And so part of that is that our our bodies are less resilient to stressors. It it takes more time to be able to recover from from these stressors without getting, you know, detailed into the, the reasons why we age. If any listeners care, there's 12 different biological causes of aging that they can read about. We have it on our website, but you can find it on scientific journals too. And all of these 12 different mechanisms or causes of aging kind of conspire against us. They are all interconnected with each other, but they lead to things like genetic damage or mitochondrial health. Mitochondria are the power plants of our cells and they take the food that you eat and even the alcohol and all of those calories, they convert into energy to be able to move your hands and for your, your, your brain to be able to think and your heart beat. And you have fewer of those as you age. And the ones that you do have are less functional. So as a result, you're going to, um, your, your organs are not going to function quite as well as you get older mm. than when you are younger. And so that's part of the reason why we feel it's very important to pay close attention to the fundamental aging processes so that we can disrupt them and slow them down so that if you do have a you know a night out with alcohol that you can recover quicker but then even when when you're not having that alcohol you're ultimately still feeling like your younger self for longer another question that i have about sleep is i've always found that if i have a big event on friday night it's not the thursday night sleep that i care so much about it's the wednesday night sleep so Basically, sleep deprivation or a good night of sleep will impact me 24 hours delayed. Is that common? Is there a reason for that? So I, I don't know if there's been research on that specifically because it sounds like a very specific, you know, personal um, Oh, it's effect. just me. <laughs> no, no, well, I, I've, I've actually felt similar. What, what I think my hypothesis, so this isn't based on scientific studies, but I think that it has to do with what I was mentioning before with stress hormones. Mm -hmm. So if you get a good night of sleep on Wednesday night, and then the Thursday night, you're restless and you're waking up, you first of all, you've accumulated enough hours of sleep prior that you're in a good place still. So you're not, there's, there's a concept known as sleep debt. 
So if you go too many days with too few hours of sleep, you accumulate a debt of sleep, which you can actually repay by sleeping more in the following days, right? The exception, and this is my hypothesis, is that the stress hormone point that I made about alcohol before also applies to a lack of sleep. So if you were sleeping well for most of the days and then Thursday night you don't sleep well and you go into Friday and feel you feel good, it could, in addition to that sleep debt concept, it could also just be stress hormones that have you feeling energized and charged. Oh. And then maybe Saturday you feel a little bit groggy because you're now catching up on the sleep. Oh, that, the stress hormones thing makes a lot more sense because it's always my whole life that I can think of before the bar exam or before a big TV event, I never get good sleep the night of because I have so much anxiety and I'm always like scared that I'm going to miss my alarm. So I'm constantly waking up. So it's probably like the combination of the sleep bank thing that you were talking about. And then the fact that I have that anxiety and the stress hormones the day of the event, almost like the adrenaline carrying me through or? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, that's what I would guess. That would be my best guess. Interesting. So the sleeping concept, it's basically like if my ideal number of hours of sleep is eight hours, if I get six hours one night, but then 10 hours the next night, it's the equivalent of getting good sleep on both nights? More or less. I mean, you would it, it would be more ideal if you got eight hours every day, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's not like a perfect equation. But generally speaking, yes. Uh, your, your body is intelligent enough to know how many hours you need. So as long as you're taking care of the other aspects of your health, like your diet and your activity and stress resilience, in other words, like not being overwhelmed by stress and being in a good mental state, all of those things, and you go to sleep, your body is going to more or less know how much sleep you need. Now, there's an exception to that in the sense of your circadian rhythm, right? So your circadian rhythm is your natural sleep-wake cycle. And the more disciplined you are with your sleep, the more likely it is that you're going to wake up at the same time every morning. So let's just say every morning you wake up at 7 a.m. and you're really disciplined with it. You get sunlight in your eyes right when you wake up and you get a little movement and activity. Then if you go to sleep too late, you might still wake up at 7 a.m. And so in that case, you need to force yourself to go to sleep earlier, right? So not everyone experiences that. Some people, they don't have a strong circadian rhythm. And so if they need more sleep, they'll just sleep right through the alarm and they'll just keep sleeping. And for those people, the body is is doing what it needs to do to try to recover on that sleep. But I would say the healthier person has a strong sleep rhythm and they're waking up at the same time every morning. And for them, it they need to take the responsibility to try to go to bed a little bit earlier to make up for that lost sleep. Is that also something that gets impacted with age? Because I remember when I was younger, if I worked till 3 a.m., I would have no problem sleeping till 11 a.m. Now it's kind of like no matter what time I go to sleep, my body will wake me up at 7 or 8 or 7 or 8, let's say, whatever rhythm I've been in. Well, I, I would say that like our, our sleep does change as we age, right? So I don't know if you've ever joked about it before, but I know, you know, friends of mine have about like, you know, old people are in bed by, you know, 8 p.m. and they're waking up at 5 a.m. So yes, like our our sleep cycles, our sleep um, timing does start to change as we get older. 
So to that it point- It does shift that way. Like It does shift, That's yes. something in your body that's causing that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know specifically why our circadian rhythm starts to shift as, as we age, but even the number of hours. So for example, young, a, a, a very young child, right? A baby needs like 12 plus hours a night of sleep. Someone in, you know, who's seven, eight years old might need 10, 11 hours of sleep. So part of the reason for that is that when you're very young, you are continually growing, right? So just imagine how small a baby is. And then in just a few short years, they're getting you know many feet longer. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's a lot of, of growth. And a lot of growth occurs through sleep. And a lot of the toxins are from our bodies are removed during sleep. So sleep is this restorative period. So as you age, you can see at like decade by decade, the average amount of sleep declines and the amount of repair that the body is doing is also declining. Some scientists and doctors suggest that as you age, you should do what you can to try to increase the amount of sleep. So to try to fight nature a little bit, maybe take melatonin, maybe take some other sleep supplements, safe ones, of course, not prescription drugs, and try to extend the amount of time you're sleeping because in theory, that's going to improve your health. We see that people that sleep too little, brand new research within the last few years has found that they have much higher risk of Alzheimer's, cardiovascular or heart disease. Uh, and, and that's just the beginning of it. We'll probably find much more happens to our health when you're not getting the proper amounts of sleep. At what point do you think these bad habits, so like, for example, not sleeping enough, the damages of that become irreversible? If I'm 40 years old and have not had good sleep habits, can I start at age 40 and start getting the perfect amount of sleep each night and kind of reverse some of those damages? I would say most likely yes. So if you consider the, the pace at which people start to age, as well as the pace at which they start to get chronic diseases of aging, they're more or less in line with each other and it goes up exponentially. And you start seeing people getting chronic diseases of aging in their late 20s, believe it or not, right? For some people, very few, but it starts. And then in the 30s, it, it, it accelerates. And by the time you're in your 40s and 50s, now it's going up a steep incline and 60s and 70s, it's like very high. And so I would say that, you know, as, as early as when you're in your mid to late 20s, definitely by the time you're in your 30s, you should start paying attention to all of these different things that can contribute to aging. If you're fortunate enough where you haven't gotten sick yet, then 100%, you can most likely reverse course very quickly uh, we, we see it with exercise, for example, people who are sedentary and then they start to exercise, mm -hmm. their risk of cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, uh, even other things like cancer and so on, they start to plummet once people make that change in their lives. Now, of course, it's better if you've always been healthy, but you can, you can get probably 80% of the way there if you now start no matter what age you are. And then, of course, if you have already gotten a chronic illness of some sort, you should 100%, you, it's all the more important that you get control over this. For example, if you have heart disease or diabetes or cancer, it's that much more important for you to watch what you're eating, to uh, make sure you're physically active, to get adequate sleep, to make sure that you're not deficient in any vitamins or minerals. 
all of those things are that much more important. So I would say for everyone, no matter where you are, it's something that you should consider doing. Mm. Another thing that you were mentioning was how important reducing and managing stress in your life is. Can you talk about how we can manage that better? Sure. So one great way, uh, one of the more ideal things you can do is to have a strong social circle. Research has found that the ideal number or the minimum number to have the maximum benefit is three close friends. And you want those three close friends to be positive relationships, not toxic relationships, Mm. obviously, right? To feel like you have someone to turn to goes a long way. And by extension, being in a committed relationship actually has been shown to extend lifespan. For example, married couples have longer lifespans Even if there's stress in that relationship, even if there are arguments in that relationship, they tend to have longer lifespans, partly probably because you feel like you have someone in your life, right? Uh, There are studies that have looked at physical touch and the impact that that can have on animals. And the lifespan of rabbits, for example, is extended and their health span is extended if they are simply pet every day compared to them just being in a cage, right? So there's just something about us animals. Humans are the most social of animals. To have that social support network, physical touch, and so on, that goes a long way in extending our health and our lifespan. And I would argue that part of that is related to the reductions in stress. Other things you can do, you can meditate, for example. Meditation is a fantastic process. I I do it myself. It doesn't have to be religious or spiritual. It's really about just sitting still with yourself and observing your thoughts and then trying to to get to a neutral place. And that can make a lot of things that are stressful in your life disappear. Or in my case, sometimes I might feel stressed, but I don't know exactly why. It's just feeling this tension in your your chest. And when I meditate, those thoughts naturally start to come to my mind and I notice them. And by noticing them, then I can now cope with them or eliminate those stressors. And so that goes a long way. Uh, For someone who's religious, they can um, get similar benefits through things like prayer. If you have a gratitude journal, you can write down the things that you are grateful for, or at least maybe have a daily habit where each morning or every night before bed, you just think of two or three things that you appreciate about your life or what happened today that, that you're, you're, you're thankful for. So those are just a few of the things. Physical exercise can help reduce stress. Uh, there's something about you know, lifting heavy weights or, or, or going for a run or a bike ride or dancing, you know, this physical movement, nature and biology has incentivized us to feel good from mm-hmm. doing it, right? And we, we get these neurohormones, these, these um, molecules that make us feel good when we exercise for good reason. And so uh, that can oftentimes also help people reduce their stress. What are some of the ways that stress can impact you physically? A number of ways. So one is is this you know age old tale that is actually true is it can lead to hair graying. So uh, yeah, so that we have these what's known as melanocytes, which produce melanin, which is this pigment that leads to our hair being colored. And uh, as if you have stress, you can actually cause damage to those melanocytes or to the stem cells that produce the melanocytes. And that can then lead to hair graying. Fortunately, and how much of that is genetic, though? 
because I have a lot of stress and I haven't had one pop out yet. But my husband, I've stressed him out a lot apparently, so he has a lot of gray hairs coming out. <laughs> Maybe you're better at coping with stress than, <laughs> than he is. I, I would say there's probably a genetic component to it, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is is probably also just due to how people cope with the stress. It could also be nutrient deficiencies. So maybe someone has more deficiencies than someone else. And so they're more sensitive to the stressors or their hair Mm. is more sensitive to it. So there's a number of different factors at play to determine whether someone gets that gray hair or not. Interesting. When I first started my business, I was every role. I was the lawyer, the person in front of the camera, the person behind the scenes, the assistant, the CEO, and the accountant. And once your business gets to a certain size, you come to the realization that if you wear too many hats without the right systems in place to help you, the cracks start to emerge. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 36,000, 25, 1. 36,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. And you know how important it is as a business owner to have all this key information in one place. It allows you to make better decisions. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash Erica. That's netsuite.com slash Erica to get your KPI checklist. As always, Erica with a K, netsuite.com slash Erica. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com invest. What about people? I know I'm the kind of person, if I'm super stressed in my life, I actually lose weight. What does that mean? Well, you might you might find yourself when you're super stressed not eating as much. I, I think a lot of people, uh, you, you have two different scenarios. Some people, when they're stressed, they eat. And they go to, oftentimes, the very starchy, carb-filled comfort foods. Food, yeah. Comfort foods, um, a lot of sugars and so on. Because you know people compare sugar to cocaine or to a drug, right? Because it does have these 
effects where it, it can make us feel good, right? And so especially a starch, which is absorbed a little bit slower than sugar, it extends the time frame a little bit and you might feel good for a while while you have that. So some people resort to food as their medicine in a negative way when they're stressed and they overeat and they gain weight. Others, possibly you, when you feel stressed, you actually lose your your hunger. You you lose the sense of wanting to eat something. I'm similar. If I'm if I'm very stressed about something, the last thing I want is is that food. I almost when I'm stressed, I want to have that energy that comes from not eating, right? That stress hormones. I want to feel energized, so I'm focused and I'm alert, and I can now try to solve the issue. I don't want to feel calm and lay in bed and fall asleep, mm -hmm. right? So it's probably partly personality types that play a role in whether you seek the comfort or you seek being charged and energized to try to solve the problem. But that's mm -hmm. just a guess of mine. And what you were saying about sugar too really resonated with me because you're right. Sometimes when I'm super stressed, I don't eat, but then sometimes I resort to sugar because I want that little pick-me-up and that comfort that comes with it. Yep. Most people respond that way. They want to have the carbs or the sugar. Is any amount of sugar good for us or sugar is always bad and we should try to minimize it? So there aren't really any health benefits of most forms of sugar. We crave sugar because if you consider throughout evolution, we needed food, we needed to survive. And sugar is a very quick, efficient source of energy. And so if you imagine people, very thin hunters, gatherers, they're looking everywhere for food they're now looking for the beehive to get the honey and to now have that energy um, and the calorie source, right? But now where food is plentiful and in modern society, you can find it anywhere and you can continually eat. Since we're not in that, you know, starvation type state, the sugar is, is not beneficial. So it doesn't mean you can't have any of it, but you want to limit the amount of it that you do have because sugar is a damaging molecule. It can cause... I mentioned earlier the idea of crosslinks where the sugar attaches to proteins within your within your tissue and then stiffens that tissue. And then that tissue, when it's stiff, is not flexible and able to do its job anymore. Imagine like blood vessels. You want them to be very flexible so your blood can flow through them. And if you have higher blood pressure, for example, because you're stressed or because you're exercising, you want them to be able to expand like a, like a rubber band. But if they have a lot of crosslinks that build up over time from a lot of sugar and other reasons, if they're now um, stiff, now they, they don't expand and the blood can't, can't travel through as well. And then other molecules like cholesterol might get stuck in those arteries and prevent the blood. And then that's how things like heart attacks can happen. Do you think that with these things like avoiding sugar and avoiding alcohol, the cold turkey way is better or moderation? Because I found personally, January 1st of every year, I try to start it with no sugar, no alcohol. Sometimes it lasts three months. Sometimes it lasts like three days. This year was about three days. But I do feel better after those three months of no sugar, no alcohol. But moderation has never quite worked for me. The idea of like, I'd much rather be cold turkey completely for a month, two months, three months. The idea of moderation, like having one little half of a cookie has never worked. Yeah, I think it depends on the personality type, right? So some people, moderation is key because they really can control themselves. And when they have a half a cookie, they can actually abstain from having the whole plate of cookies, right? 
I think a lot of people are the types that once they have a half a cookie, they can't control themselves and they want to eat everything. And so if that's the case, then you probably do want to go cold turkey. But how do you then sustain yourself and maintain that habit of being cold turkey? I would say you, first of all, like I mentioned before, you need to go more than 21 days. You need to go mm-hmm. three weeks where you're you're in that that you know that the new lifestyle habit. Another thing is you want to have like positive reinforcement. You don't want to be with friends or family or especially a husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend who behave completely counter to your goals because you're going to fall into the trap very quickly and easily if you are socializing with these tendencies, right? Yeah. And then the third thing I would say is that you want to then try to find healthy healthy alternatives, right? So if everyone, for example, is going out uh, drinking and you know that you don't want to drink anymore, is there a less unhealthy alternative? There are different companies popping up, especially on the West Coast for alcohol alternatives. And oftentimes they'll mix in these cocktails like different types of mushrooms or maybe a little bit of CBD or L-theanine, which is calming. And it's a different type of feel but just like someone who maybe smokes pot has a different feel, but it works for them than an alcohol, these different concoctions might actually work for people too. Hmm. Why is that 21-day number the sweet spot? Because I know when I've done no alcohol or no sugar, around 14 days, the cravings stop. So that first 14 days is always really hard because I'm craving the cookies, I'm craving the chocolate. Is it something in our bodies that's stops like indicating to ourselves that we want sugar after that 21 days you're saying? Or is it just the pure habit formation, the social aspect of it? I think it's a combination of things. So one is definitely just the the habit. So it's the, the neurological side of things, right? You've conditioned your mind to expect something. And so uh, when you stop, it's still expecting it. And it takes some time to break that habit. There might also be a physiological reason for it, um, specifically in your microbiome. So your microbiome is contain, it contains many different bacterial species, right? And other things too, like um, fungus, for example, is, is in, in our, our, our guts, right? But bacteria is for the, not necessarily bad fungus, <laughs> right? It, it depends on how much and if there's an overgrowth or not. But you have all of these different species within our guts. Uh, by some measures, it's as, as many bacteria as we have cells within our body. It's a tremendous amount and it's they're all alive. It's like this whole ecosystem. It's, it's a jungle within our bodies, right? And now imagine that these different species are going to have appetites for different types of foods. And so you have some species in there that can only survive on sugar and carbs. You have other species that thrive off of, let's just say proteins and amino acids from proteins. So if you suddenly start starving these bacteria, you may have heard of something called the gut-brain connection. There's this connection, literally a a nerve that connects from your gut to your brain that can have an impact on how you think and how you feel as a result of what you've eaten or not eaten. And so there's the possibility that by starving these bacteria of the food that they're craving, they then start communicating, secreting molecules to communicate to your brain that you want the carbs, you want the sugar for their survival. As crazy as that might sound, right? So if you go long enough where they're starving, they eventually die off. 
And then based on the other foods you eat, those bacteria take that real estate and they thrive. And so you want to go long enough where those bacteria are dying off and the healthier bacteria are now thriving. And now you're in this, this state of homeostasis, the state of uh, your, your, your body and your gut being at a new, a new normal, a new regular that is healthier for you. Now, if you reintroduce the sugars and so on, you might get you know hooked on them again, but for two reasons. One would be because of the psychological addiction to those foods. And that is what would probably get you to, after having just one cookie, saying, I need 10, mm-hmm. right? And now the remaining bad bacteria that were there, there's still a little bit, now they start to multiply again, right? But that doesn't happen instantaneously. That will happen over the course of a few days. And then you've you've set the process in motion again, where you've fallen off the wagon, and now you're you're have you're craving carbs every day, and you're you're eating all the sugars again. That's so interesting. So when those cravings stop for me, like after fourteen days, it's because those things in my stomach have gotten so small or have been flushed away. That's probably part of the reason. It's also partly because of habit, and yeah, it's a com- it's it's a combination of all of these things coming together that then lead you to, for you, it's 14 days. For a lot of people, um, even just to enforce a new habit, it's like 21 days to do so. By 21 days, most people will have, you know, their microbiome will, will have shifted significantly. Their habit will have been broken. And now it's maintainable. It's up to them whether they want to maintain it or they want to then sneak in that, that snack or that treat that then might throw them off course. That's up to them but they're able to if they wanted enough to continue that way. I think also I've, one thing I've observed is when I do these three-month periods with no sugar, my taste buds change too because when I introduce sugar back in for the first time, it just tastes so sweet, like beyond sweet. Yeah, so so there was a period when I was doing a ketogenic diet where I had like no carbs in my diet, no sugars, and you, you do feel incredible while on this diet, but... What I found was that things that were ordinarily not considered at all sweet tasted very sweet to me. Like for example, different herbs and spices, cinnamon tasted like sugar to me or mint leaves tasted like very sweet and like a very powerful flavor to them. I think that when we're having all of these sweets and these very powerful flavors, it it kind of numbs our taste buds. And when you go periods, long periods without them, you just, you rebuild that sensitivity and you, you taste the, the defining characteristics of foods that much better. That's so crazy. I imagine you've tried every single thing there is to try to like get a healthier body. How do you decide what is sustainable for you, what you want to continue to do? It's a good question. I think it's a combination of how I feel and how maintainable I think it is. Overall, I'm, I'm a pretty disciplined person in the sense that like when I have a goal or a vision for what I want my future to be, I, I then work really hard at, at achieving that and at like pushing away all of the distractions. So I need to figure out like, is this ultimately achieving the goal that I'm looking for? For me at, at this point in my life, like my career is very important to me and, and building Novos up into my vision of being able to add a billion years of life to society is very important to me. And so I need to do everything I can to optimize myself, to be able to work long hours, to deal with big stressful events, 
to be able to take on all different types of scenarios, whether it be you know, managing the team or doing scientific research or doing a podcast interview, right? I need to be very flexible and adaptable. And so in order to do that, I need to think of what are the things conducive to that? Is alcohol and getting drunk and having fun with my friends going to help me or hinder me in that longer term goal? As much as I might want to have that good time some night, right? For the most part, with few exceptions, maybe my brother's wedding that's coming up, I, I might you know deviate. But generally speaking, it's about um, that longer term vision for what I want my life to be. And then just seeing is what I'm doing today working towards that vision or is it taking me off track from that vision? We're also having Brian Johnson on the podcast who is all about health and biohacking and all of this. And I've seen the food he eats as just this brown slush. Compared to that, you seem to be more on the spectrum of you want to maintain a nice, enjoyable lifestyle, even though you do care about health. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, when it comes to, I know Brian Johnson came to the forefront because of his um, biological testing and spending millions of dollars each year to try to achieve a younger biological age. And um, I've taken the same tests as well. My biological age is, is um, according to these scientific tests, about 36% younger than my chronological age. Wow. So it's in, in my late 20s when I'm actually almost 40. And so, so I've, I've achieved, um, I believe, better numbers than Brian Johnson has without spending the millions of dollars and still, you know, living a, a more or less normal lifestyle. So, you know, I, I do have the occasional pizza. I, I do have, uh, you know, the glass of wine or two. I'm not, you know, spending millions of dollars. I'm spending, you know, maybe a couple hundred dollars each month um, on, on health-related supplements or technologies or, or apps and so on. So I think what I'm doing is is pretty achievable. That's so interesting because I think one thing that you said that really resonated with me is the reason you want to be healthy so that you can build your company and perform well and, and help a lot of people with that. My approach when it comes to health has definitely changed because I think when I was in my 20s, I cared about health because of the vanity. Like I wanted to look good and go to the beach and feel proud or whatever it was. Now it really is oh, I want to be able to perform well at work. So if I have an interview, a podcast interview, I don't drink the night before because I know I need to be sharp for it and be able to perform and extract as much information from the guests as possible. So I think my mentality around health has changed, even though I haven't quite implemented everything I know I should. Yeah. Yeah. So my, I, I had a, a similar uh, realization uh, for a very different reason when I was a teenager I got into exercise and health when I was very young. I saw Men's Health Magazine when I was 12. I picked up an issue and I really wanted to get into good shape and be attractive to the girls, right? Like, let's be honest, that's the reason I got into <laughs> this, right? And then when I was 16 years old, I was stopped in my tracks with the brain tumor and I then suddenly understood that health is far more than the aesthetics or the athletic performance. It is avoidance of disease and optimizing ourselves to be able to perform at our peak. And so that that's what kind of started my journey. But I don't think that either one of those perspectives is wrong. Like it's okay to want to be healthy, to look good too. There is a superficial aspect to it. Uh, we all want to be attractive to others. Again, we're a social animal, right? And by being attractive, you feel that much more connected with people because they are attracted to you, right? So 
there's nothing wrong with wanting to be attractive. At the same time, it's important to realize that health goes well more or far beyond, you know, having a six pack abs or having perfect skin. It's, it's literally avoiding disease, which when I was laying on the hospital bed, wondering if I would wake up at 16 years old, that was a really critical lesson I learned that a lot of people don't learn until their 40s, 50s, 60s, or 80s. I learned as a teen. And so I, I consider it a blessing. I was very fortunate to go through that difficult period because it, it shaped who I am today and changed my values and perspectives in so many different ways and has ultimately led to me wanting to start Novos and to try to impact as many people as I can in a positive way. In all of the research that you have done and the scientists that you've worked with, what has surprised you the most? Well, I, I would say just from the very beginning, uh, the understanding that you can slow down aging um, and we could possibly even reverse your biological age, which what does that ultimately mean? It means that uh, if your biological age is essentially how old your biology is, so the risk of diseases, your risk of mortality, um, and your ability to do things, right? Like physically or mentally, which declines with time. That is something that if you are, say, biologically 40 today, you could, with the right habits and, and being disciplined about them, actually reverse it so that you're the equivalent of someone who's biologically, say, 36 or 35. You haven't, you know, warped Space time, you haven't actually reduced the number of chronological years you are or the number of times we've circled the sun, right? You still have the same birthday, but biologically, you're essentially a younger you. And to realize that that's possible, I think, is really empowering. Most people wouldn't think of it that way. It sounds like science, science fiction, but it's actually scientifically proven. And so now it's about getting the message out there and to empower people with this information so that they can take this into their own hands and reduce the risk of disease, extend their healthy lifespan, not just lifespan, but their healthy lifespan. So we've talked about sleep, we've talked about food and stress. What about physical activity? It's quite important for us, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> very important. You don't want to sit still all day uh, because then you're not uh, your muscles are going to start to shrink. You'll have fewer, uh, smaller muscles. They'll atrophy, as it's called. You're not getting the circulation. You're not putting the stress on your heart to keep your heart strong and so on. So movement is very important. Depending on how old you are, um, muscle is also very important too. So we'll talk a little bit first about like cardiovascular side of health, and then we'll talk about the muscle side of, okay. of, of activity. So when it comes to cardiovascular health, you want to get out and move. And so that at the least means 25 minutes a day of brisk walking. It's been found that in terms of your, your health risk, disease risk, especially cardiovascular risk, that once you hit that 25 minute mark, you're getting, it's like Pareto's principle, the 80-20 rule. You're getting like practically 80%, not literally, more like 65%, but you're getting a lot of benefit for a small investment. So walk 25 minutes a day, quickly, where your heart rate is, is speeding up a little bit. A good measure for that is if you feel like if you were to talk to someone, you're feeling a little bit winded, mm -hmm. then that's like the right level for a brisk walk. Is running not necessary for that? 
It's not necessary, but running would be better. Okay. So at this point, we're just talking about the absolute minimum. You just want to walk 25 minutes briskly where you would be a little winded if you were talking to someone. Okay. The least that you want to do. If you want to go above and beyond, then yes, you can um, extend that time frame significantly. It can be an hour of walking. It could be two hours of walking. It could be running for 30 minutes to an hour. And you want there are different heart rate zones you can target that you can compute based on your age. But you want to ideally be in at least like heart rate zone two or three. And that's the, that is a sustainable heart rate zone that you can go for a while if you stay within two or three. So that's the first thing. You could also do high intensity interval training, which is fantastic for you. It takes a lot less time, but it's a lot more intense on your body. So that would be things like sprints. You do a sprint for 15 seconds, then you walk back for a minute and then you do it again and you do it eight times, right? That's one example. You could do it with the ropes, right? Where mm -hmm. people are exercising with, with the ropes. There's many different things you can do for high intensity interval training. That is, is a fantastic exercise, more benefit in less time than regular cardio or walking. So that, that's largely for your cardiovascular system um, and detoxification and, and so on. Then your muscles are important too, especially your lower body muscles. Why your lower body muscles? Because as you get older, uh, one of the more common causes of death is actually just falling. It's uh, your legs are not stable enough. You lose balance. You fall down a flight of steps or you fall and hit your head and countless people die this way. And so this all happens because as you age, um, when you're, you're getting to about your 60s, this process known as sarcopenia um, takes place. It actually happens much earlier. Like once you hit, I think around 40, you start losing some muscle and strength, but it really picks up around 60. And so you want to have as strong of a foundation to start with. So as the muscle is being lost, at least you have something there. Ideally, you're still exercising too when you're in your 50s and 60s and so on. It won't be as intense. It might just be body weight squats, for example but at least you're then maintaining that muscle, right? Mm -hmm. So it's important to do that. It's also important for other reasons. So there are studies that have found that um, your, your risk of cancer can be reduced by, uh, by weightlifting, for example, right? So it really comes down to the utilization of our bodies, of our muscles, and increasing the circulation and the cellular rejuvenation that takes place when you're using something and the body then needs to come back to repair it, it can then reduce the risk of the cancers and the heart disease and so on. Diabetes, of course. So many, many different reasons why you want to be physically active. There's a minimal dose, like I mentioned. And then there's an excessive dose, which is going too far. And going too far is a problem for fewer people, but I have found myself in this camp when I was doing like triathlons, for example, you can put too much stress on your body. Uh, you know, I would argue a marathon or especially super marathoners, they are putting a lot of stress not only on their on, on like their organs when it comes to the muscles, but also like the joints and the ligaments and so on, but also just on a more microscopic level. When you're exercising, you're producing free radicals, which we talked about earlier in terms of antioxidants. These free radicals, when they're at a moderate dose, you get the hormesis, the hormetic effect from it. But when you are over-exercising, your body can't cope with that much stress, just like the beginning of the conversation with too much alcohol or too much UV. Well, it could be too much exercise too, where your body can't recover well. And so I would say, again, the dose makes the poison and you want to have a dose that is within reason for your body. 
you might be able to run that marathon every day, but that doesn't mean that it is actually conducive to better health in the long term. Okay, what about now supplements and and making sure that our body has the right nutrients in it? Because I recently went for a test and they said I had low vitamin D. So then the doctor gave me vitamin D and I'm having to have vitamin D. So there's two concepts when it comes to supplements. So one is your general health supplements and the other is your longevity related supplements. So we'll start with general health. So general health supplements aren't going to extend your lifespan or your health span, but they can prevent premature disease or premature death. There's a reason why the government literally says these are the required vitamins and minerals. It's because enough science has been accumulated to say that without these, we then get diseases or we die. For example, scurvy might come as a result of uh, inadequate vitamin C. And so we can get these vitamins and minerals through our diet if we eat a perfectly healthy diet. But I would argue that even if you eat a completely plant and an animal-based natural food diet, you're still probably not getting enough of, of the vitamins and minerals for a few reasons. First is our farming methods today are very different than how we evolved. So we evolved with eating wild plants and wild animals. So we were getting all of the nutrients that way. Now we're not doing proper crop rotation, for example, of the plants. And the spinach doesn't have as many nutrients in it today as it may have had 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. And there are growth hormones in it too, right? Like to get the strawberries bigger, they put some kind of hormones well, in it. So, so the, you get hormones oftentimes in, in animals, right? Like so in cows, for example. And so there's milks that will have hormones in it added or even just natural hormones. Because remember, milk is fed to babies to help them grow. We're the only animal that drinks milk when we're adults, right? So that's something to keep in mind. But when it comes to, to plants, pesticides are, are the biggest issue, right? Mm. Now, in terms of getting bigger strawberries, that's usually genetic modification or, or GMOs, oh. right? G genetically modified organisms. But the pesticides are, are an issue. That's where organic versus inorganic comes into play. Plants overall, are, they're not yielding as, as high of a um, vitamin and mineral level as they typically do. Even if they were, if you don't have a very specific diet plan, um, you may still be deficient in specific vitamins and minerals. For example, you might not be eating enough, uh, let's just say sunflower seeds and nuts to be able to get vitamin E. And so maybe you're, you're getting plenty of the you know, B vitamins and vitamin C, but you're now deficient in vitamin E, and now something goes wrong with your health. Another reason why we believe you need to consider supplementation for vitamins and minerals is that as you get older, our bodies absorb less of them. And we live much longer lifespans than ever before and longer lifespans than evolution even cared for, right? This, this sounds like a crazy concept for people, but... Evolution doesn't care for us to live into our 80s or 90s or 100. Evolution just wants us to live long enough to procreate and to then care for the offspring. They want us to have children and then to take care of those children. And then as long as those children grow old enough to then have their own children, evolution says, okay, you can disappear now. I'm done with you, right? I gotten what I need out of you. And so throughout history, we haven't really uh, lived into, at least in, in massive levels, into our 80s and 90s and 100s. And so most people are just not equipped 
to be able to uh, live that long without at least increasing the levels of vitamins and minerals. The last thing I would say is that we have more stressors in our lives now and we live different lives. So you mentioned vitamin D. Part of the reason you don't have enough vitamin D is because number one, you're not outdoors as much. You're spending a lot of time indoors, right? And then we've also had had these emigration patterns outside of like the coastal plains of Africa into like Northern latitudes, for example, where there's less sun exposure. It gets cold in the winter. We're not mm-hmm. outdoors as much. And so it's not what we evolved with. And so our vitamin D levels are much lower. So you need to supplement for that. And then the stressors of alcohol and work-life balance and everything else means that we're, we're burning through the nutrients a lot more than normally. Then you have longevity health. And this is where Novo specializes. So we created a patent pending formulation along with a team of scientists uh, from Harvard Medical School, MIT, and the Salk Institute that study aging and are very familiar with the scientific research around different molecules that can have favorable effects on aging and health span. And all of the ingredients in our formula are 100% natural. They're either found within our bodies, but they decline with time. For example, alpha-ketoglutarate or hyaluronic acid, or they're found in nature. There are are things that we're eating in those strawberries or drinking in our water, but now with filtered water uh, and municipal water supplies, we don't get it in our water anymore. The ingredients we use are based on more than 220 scientific studies. We've done studies of our own um, with human cells, with humans taking it, measuring their biological age. We've reduced biological age by very significant levels. In fact, you mentioned Brian Johnson before, there's this um, rejuvenation Olympics uh, board that he has in the leaderboard. We have customers of ours who have done nothing but take our supplements and they have... um, in one case, an even better result than Brian Johnson on the um, on the you know biological age to chronological age difference. If we were to create almost a blueprint of these are the ten things or these are the five things we should do to improve our health and our life, what would you put on that? We'll start from the beginning with the timing of your meals. So make sure that you're eating within a smaller time window. And ideally, we didn't talk about this, but ideally every so often you do a fast that is longer than the period of that time-restricted feeding. So in other words, go 24 hours without eating something. As long as you have enough body fat, you're healthy, you don't have any medical issues, check with your doctor first. But if you're able to healthily go 24 hours or I've gone as long as 72 hours, three days without eating food and just drinking water and electrolytes, you need to make sure you get adequate sodium and potassium and magnesium, then uh, that is one of the most rejuvenating things that you can do for your body. In fact, if you consider people who naturally have fasting in their their lifestyle, so for example, uh, religious people who fast, there was a study done, I believe it was in in Saudi Arabia, where they found that through fasting, through the Islamic uh, religion, that uh, people despite having very unhealthy diets that are correlated with cancer and heart disease and so on, that the um, rates of cancer were significantly lower than other cultures, including American, that had similar diets. Um, and it's it's owed to, or the hypothesis is that it's because of that fasting period. That's, I believe it. My mom fasts 
for religious reasons, and she always tells me this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's definitely there's definitely something to that. So I say fasting is one, and time restricted feeding. I would say making sure that you're physically active. Like I said, minimum of 25 minutes a day, but ideally, you're doing weightlifting, say three days a week. You're doing some sort of cardio or high intensity interval training twice a week. Next, I would say uh, supplementation for general health. Make sure that you are getting what you need to cover all of the bases for just avoiding disease and to make sure that you're not prematurely passing away or, or uh, getting a disease. And that can largely be based on a healthy diet, but then the supplements come into play to make sure that there are no gaps in that healthy diet. Ideally, you also consider a longevity supplement, but that's up to you and how far you want, want to take things. And Novos is, is what we believe is the best supplement out there for that. Stress to reduce that. So whatever your approach is, whether that be meditating or journaling or praying um, or spending time with a loved one and be having physical contact and so on, trying to dial down that stress as much as possible. And then recovery. So recovery is largely based on sleep. Sleep is the best thing you can do for recovery. Um, but also every so often, take a day off, don't exercise, just you know, take it easy, just reduce that pressure and, and relax. I think that was about five, but uh, I would so say <laughs> I would say that those are the, the like the main things that most people are capable of doing to one degree or another, and it would go a very long way for your health span and your lifespan. So we have a closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Chris Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away from this podcast being able to say, Chris taught me this? I would say that it is that you have control over your aging, that it's 90% lifestyle and only 10% genetics, and that you don't need to go to extremes to be able to achieve this. There are small steps that you can take in your everyday life without even spending a cent, arguably even spending less money by eating less food, for example, you can achieve this, um, this longevity ideal of a longer health span and lifespan. Thank you. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.